Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, and we're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19 meter band to Far West Africa as well as DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Amanda Machaka and Tabi and Figile Lingwati. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, Turkish President Recep Erdogan meets his Tanzanian counterpart John Magufuli. SADC Oversight Committee meets Lesotho politicians and UN agency expresses concern over humanitarian situation in Syria. In economics news, AB InBev refutes reports that it's cutting jobs in South Africa. And in sports news, Ugandan players to be rewarded for AFCON appearance. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. Very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musam. The Gambia's new vice president will be a female leader of the opposition coalition that helped bring new president Adama Barrow to power. The appointment of Aja Futumata Tambajang as vice president was announced at a press conference by the coalition spokesperson Halifa Salah. Barrow is still in Senegal where he travelled to when it was uncertain where the former president Yaya Jemeh would acknowledge defeat in the December election and step down. Nigerian authorities have warned that female suicide bombers have started carrying babies to avoid detection. This comes after two women attacked the town of Madagali 10 days ago, initially going unnoticed because they had babies on their backs. The women killed themselves, the babies and four civilians into blasts. In recent months, army troops and civilian fighters in Algeria have managed to foil many bomb attacks involving terrorists wearing explosive vests. South African opposition political party, the Economic Freedom Fighters, has again called on Zimbabwean President Robert Mugabe to step down. The party says if Mugabe continues his stay in office, he will destroy all that he has worked for. The call comes amid reports that Mugabe's ZANU-PF party is trying to raise thousands of U.S. dollars to celebrate his 93rd birthday next month. EFF leader Julius Malema has labeled members of ZANU-PF cowards who are afraid to tell Mugabe the truth. Those comrades in ZANU-PF, they can insult us anyhow they want, but we are not going to be good friends if we are not going to tell them that that which they are doing is not good for Zimbabwean people, is not good for SADC, is not good for the struggle for reclaiming the land in Africa. Because those who are leading that struggle, then they overstay and destroy Lesotho's Minister of Foreign Affairs, Mampo no 
Haketla says the recent splitting of political parties will have to be tested by floor crossing in parliament before the opposition starts claiming that it has a majority. She was speaking following a meeting with the SADC Oversight Committee mandated to be an early warning mechanism for instability in the mountain kingdom. The committee monitoring constitutional and security reforms also met the Speaker of the National Assembly, Nkloi Mutsamae. Haketla explains. Talking on general terms on the issues that we discussed in November and how much we have moved towards attaining those goals. Um, it, it is an issue that uh, there's a, a split within the DC, and that means if if you lose one or two people, there's always some apprehension. But it's okay. It is politics, that's democracy. If they decided to leave and form another party, that's fine. But what will happen then is that it is an issue for parliament and the issue of motion of no confidence has to be tested on the floor of parliament. And finally, an anti-genocide expert has called for full support for peace efforts by religious leaders. The United Nations expert on genocide prevention, Adama Dieng, says religious and faith-based organizations should be supported in their efforts to sustain peace. Dieng highlighted the importance of grassroots peacemakers during a meeting held at the UN headquarters in New York. Religious leaders play an important leadership role and they together with religious and faith-based organizations, have a responsibility to contribute to the building of peaceful, inclusive, and cohesive societies that are resilient to conflict, violent extremism, and atrocity crimes. They can reach out to and influence large numbers of people, provide support during emergencies, respond to the needs of marginalized communities. That's the news. Headlines at 8.30 Central African Time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you. And Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan met his Tanzanian counterpart John Magafuli in Dar es Salaam on Monday to discuss trade and security. Erdogan urged President Magafuli to shut down institutions linked to a Muslim cleric who is accused by Turkey of leading a failed coup last year in that country. The two leaders also signed agreements of cooperation between both countries, which is part of Turkey's effort to improve relations with Africa. Gabriel Zakaria has more from Dar es Salaam. Both heads of state of Tanzania and Turkey say there is potential for partnership in tourism, agriculture, energy and minerals, construction and other fields with Tanzania. A key priority for the Turkish government is also targeting areas of investment and business in which citizens of both countries will benefit from each other. Tanzania's President Dr. John Magufuli explains more. 
na mheshimiwa rais nimemuomba kuangalia uwezekano kupitia Exim Bank ya Uturuki During our talk with his excellence the president I asked him to give us financial aid through the Turkish bank Exim to support our plan of building a standard gauge railway line known as Central Corridor Railway Line and the president has agreed to support us and he promised to instruct his minister of economy to see how Turkey could support us and I'm sure we'll be supported by Turkish government for that project of 400 Turkey has been in a diplomatic and business relation with Tanzania for a long time and witnessed the rapid growing of economy between the two countries in recent years. Worth more than 100,000 US dollars in Tanzania, economic record of 2016. Dr. Bashiru Ali is an economist and a political lecturer at the University of Dar es Salaam. This relationship is not as mature as other traditional relations that you, we have been having like China for example. You can't compare the relationship between Tanzania and Turkey uh, with the relationship between Tanzania and China in in, in all senses. But um, I, I think if you look at the government plan, and particularly this fifth five, uh, fifth uh, phase government of uh, Dr. Magufuli, you will see it is trying to identify some uh, areas of investment uh, which can uh, boost up its, uh, its, uh, its status in terms of industrialization. And one sector which is likely to be uh, very significant in this relationship between Tanzania and Turkey is, for example, the pharmaceutical industry. On his part, the Turkish president Recep Tayyip Erdogan says signing of the docket in Dar es Salaam will enable both countries to benefit equally from each other and asking his counterpart President Magufuli to visit Turkey later this year when the embassy of Tanzania will be launched for the first time in Turkey. I can say that we have seen a friendly roadmap that will enable people from the two countries to cooperate in a win-win situation. And I have come with a group of business people from uh, various sectors who will later get time to share and exchange news with their colleagues from Tanzania. I also like to welcome your Excellency President Magufuli to Turkey, especially during the launching of Tanzania's embassy in Turkey later this year. Zat ziyaretimizin ve imzalamış olduğumuz bu anlaşmaların hayırlı olmasını diliyorum. Tanzania Broadcasting Corporation TBC which is a public broadcaster is also signed an agreement with the Turkey Broadcasting Firm to cooperate in exchanging technology and the program's content. Dr. Ayub Ryoba is the director general of TBC. Tutafikia hatua ambayo tutaona namna gani wenzetu kwa sababu we have agreed to share experience and technology with our friends from Turkish media in terms of exchanging contents and the programs so that viewers and listeners from the two countries could learn from each other. I mean training in the capacity where some of our staff would go to Turkey and vice versa to undergo professional training with our firms. During their closed-door meeting with Tanzanians' leader on the first leg of his tour, of Africa, Erdogan pushed for the closure or takeover of schools linked to Muslim cleric Fethullah Gulen. Political analyst Dr. Bashiru Ali from the University of Dar es Salaam 
says the Turkish allegations against the school needed to be checked in domestic level before making an interruption with the school. Uh, in my view, we'll approach this, uh, this uh, internal problem uh, in the sense that this is a typically domestic affair in, in, in Turkey. It will, it will approach it very carefully. Uh, because uh, in this country we are trying to to democratize our our political system. We we want uh, to to act on the basis of facts and on basis of principles of justice and transparency. And I think uh, the government has its own mechanisms of of dealing with. Uh, uh, problems like that and I don't uh, uh, expect that the government of Tanzania will concentrate on uh, issues which are obviously quite domestic. The meeting between the two nations was also able to design and agree upon a well-chartered roadmap for further cooperation between the two countries. Reporting for Channel Africa in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania, this is Gabriel Zakaria. Commentators are doubtful that former Gambian president Yaya Jammeh will ever return to his country. This is despite the economic community of West African states ECOWAS and the UN and the AU declaring in a joint statement yesterday that Jammeh will only be leaving the tiny West African country temporarily. He left the Gambia on Saturday for exile in Equatorial Guinea after protracted negotiations with the presidents of Guinea and Mauritania. New president Adama Barrow had insisted that Jameh must leave the country following his inauguration in Senegal last week. Musi Chimombe looks at what the next move for the Gambia will be. In a carefully worded statement, ECOWAS, the UN and the AU have commended former President Yaya Jameh for his goodwill and statesmanship. The institutions say that Jameh, temporarily leaving the country, is in the interest of a peaceful transition and does nothing to prejudice his rights as a citizen of the country. Institute for Security Studies' Stephanie Walters, however, believes Jameh will not return home anytime soon. One of the things that we saw over this weekend and in fact in the last two months is that a lot of promises um, had to be made and some leverage had to be exerted in order to get Yaya Jameh to actually peacefully leave um, his country. And so that I think that probably one of the, it's sort of a, language that allows him to, to save face, he doesn't look as humiliated, um, if it seems as though one day he might actually be returning to Gambia. But I think that is unlikely in the, in the, in the, in the future. Jamel leaves under a cloud. It has been reported that more than 11 million U.S. dollars from state coffers have disappeared with Jamel when he left for Equatorial Guinea. A spokesperson for Gambia's new president, Adama Barrow, says a proper audit is needed to establish precisely how much of the country's wealth is missing. Halifa Salah. The Inspector General of Police has been given instruction to ensure that they protect all government properties. Now ministries are going to be appointed. They will go into those institutions and find out what has happened in those institutions. And we will report about them because it's a government that is ready for accountability. But you cannot make allegations without any auditing of accounts. Barrow, who was inaugurated and sworn in as president, at the Gambian embassy in Senegal last Thursday, is expected in his country soon. ECOWAS troops appear to be ensuring that enough security exists for his return. Barrow has spoken about the need to establish a Truth and Reconciliation Commission, similar to South Africa's, to heal a country that has been under Jamez draconian rule for 22 years. 
Walters says this course of action will need to be undertaken with caution. We have seen over the last few weeks and then in the last few days, again, an increasing number of Jame officials, senior officials in Jame's government, switching sides, including the head of the army. And many of those people could very well be targets of, of, of subsequent legal pursuits and could be the kinds of people who might appear in front of the Truth, Truth and Reconciliation Commission. So I think that Amadaro has a lot of uh, big decisions that he needs to make and he needs to weigh what needs to be done in the immediate term versus what needs to be done in the long term to re-establish a sense of confidence in government in, in the Gambia. Meanwhile at home, the resolution of the Gambian situation has been received positively. ANC spokesperson Zizi Godwa. We must celebrate the efforts of ECOWAS to make sure that they create stability in their region. It's important to learn that uh, leadership is important. That whatever happens, leadership must always provide leadership. And I think the leadership provided by Okawas is what all the regions in the continent must begin to do. Whenever there are problems, let's go and implement it. EFF leader Julius Malema echoed Godwa's sentiments regarding Ekowas, but slammed the leadership of the African Union for its handling of the political crisis in the Gambia. Malema says other regions in the continent, including SADC, should take a leaf out of Ekowas's book. We saw... The, the AU, the toothless, useless AU, in a very opportunistic way, trying to follow uh, in the footsteps of ECOWAS. The AU should have been the first body to declare that stand that was declared by ECOWAS. But because AU is led by people who have got no idea about where they want to take the country to, then they were found wanting. However, Walters says the AU was correct in its handling of the situation. The AU abides by the principle of subsidiarity, which means that regional bodies really do have, are the first port of call in resolving conflicts in their region. It's not whether or not the AU, um, you know, resolved this crisis. ECOWAS is the body that is first meant to be dealing with this crisis in its own backyard. And I think the AU, uh, of course, it could have made stronger statements, and those are things that we say very often, but I think the AU knew um, that it, it needed to be handled by ECOWAS, and it was being handled by ECOWAS. And in fact, that's what we've seen. Gambians now await the return of the new president, who promises a new democratic era. That report by Busi Chamombe. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. This is Simon Muchemwa in Harare, Zimbabwe. Jean-Noël Bamwisi, Channel Africa, Kinshasa. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja. This is Moki Kinzaka in Yaoundi. Informing the world about Africa. Ntakwanangatani in Mohalizuk, Lesotho. And I am Dana Wanyonyi for Channel Africa in Mombasa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. It's 8.18 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. The SADC Oversight Committee mandated to be an early warning mechanism for instability in Lesotho has met the Minister of Foreign Affairs and the Speaker of the National Assembly on its second mission in the Mountain Kingdom. The committee is also monitoring constitutional and security reforms and implementation implementation of the recommendations of the Pumapi Commission that investigated the death of former army commander Maaparangwe Mahau. Ntakwanangatane has more. 
Early elections and the killing of a former army commander have resulted in Sarak appointing an oversight committee to keep a constant eye on developments in Lesotho and determine if they have potential to destabilize the country. Dr. Mampono Hakitla is the Minister of Foreign Affairs. You'll recall that the Sarak oversight committee was here in November last year and that was their first meeting. So according to their mandate, they're supposed to come almost every other month to see what progress has been made in the issues that were discussed in the previous uh, round. So when they came here the last time, we talked about a lot of things, but most especially on the reform program. So they just, they're just here to see how far we are with that process. When I met them this morning, we were talking on general terms on the issues that we discussed in November and how much we have moved towards attaining those goals. Those issues include constitutional and security sector reforms, a process that the government has started, but that the opposition and civil society say it is flawed because the government should be a stakeholder, not a convener. The other issue, implementation of the recommendations of the Sada Commission of Inquiry, led by Botswana Judge Mpapi Pumapi, that investigated the death of former army commander Maaparangwe Mahau. That commission recommended amnesty for soldiers still in custody who were arrested alongside Mahau for alleged mutiny, but the government has tabled an amnesty bill that covers all soldiers suspected of crimes ranging from 2007, much to the distaste of the opposition. The National Assembly, too, was highly charged before it went on Christmas recess as the opposition and the government battled it out for control of the government. When Parliament reopens on the 24th of February, the drama is likely to continue. The opposition says it has 71 of the 120 seats of Parliament and the government must step down. Matato Pafudi is the president of the Women's League of the Opposition Obasuto Convention, ABC. The Parliament must be opened as soon as they can because they have to show their powers in the Parliament. Or they have to show their there are numbers that they are really in the, in, in the position of the leading the government of Lesotho. So we said, let's hold their position that they have to open it very soon and very urgent. We said so. Dr. Mampono Hakitla is the Minister of Foreign Affairs and Treasurer of the Prime Minister's Party Democratic Congress. You require me to put on my different hat as a treasurer of the DC and not as the Minister of Foreign Affairs. Um, it, it is an issue that uh, there's a, a split within the DC and that means if, if you lose one or two people, there's always some apprehension. But it's okay. It is politics. That's democracy. If they decided to leave and form another party, that's fine. But what will happen then is that it is an issue for parliament and the issue of motion of no confidence has to be tested on the floor of parliament so we can't know until parliament reopens and we see who of our dc members has actually crossed to the ad the oversight committee's meeting with the speaker may shed light on what is likely to transpire when parliament reopens it also has to advise sadak on how to avoid any escalation it will meet stakeholders including the government the opposition chiefs and civil society I'm Takwana Ngatani in Maseru, Lesotho.
United States Envoy to South Sudan, Donald Booth, has just concluded his mission in South Sudan as the powerful nation's representative. Booth leaves South Sudan in state of continued fighting and hopes that President Salva Kiir will strive hard to put his house in order as soon as possible. James Manula has more. The United States representative to South Sudan, Donald Booth, leaves South Sudan with a strong message to the government on what it should do this year. First, to stop the fighting, to respect the the cessation of hostilities agreement that they signed, and then secondly, to move on to serious political talks. But political talks that should include a broader range of South Sudan society. The important thing is that The people of South Sudan broadly feel that they have an engagement in putting their country back together. Drafting a new constitution will have to go forward, uh, determining what the governance structure going forward will be for the country. There are other issues that remain unresolved that have been brought uh, into the limelight as clear problem areas. The security sector, for example, needs to be truly reformed. Public financial management is another area. You know, there have been many reports of corruption. These issues need to be addressed. I think it's in the interest of the people of South Sudan, as well as all the friends of South Sudan, to ensure that the resources of the country are used to build a country that will have an economy that is growing, that is diversifying, and to move away from the era of the liberation struggle and to move into that of real nationhood. And we think, though, again, the most important thing is to stop the fighting. The fighting continues to displace South Sudanese. The fighting continues to put those South Sudanese who have been displaced, as well as many others, at grave risk of not only disease, but potentially in some areas of the country of famine. Reflecting on the strategic areas that he focused on shortly before the current armed conflict erupted in South Sudan, the outgoing United States representative to South Sudan, Donald Booth, made the following remarks. Before the conflict, I focused on a number of issues that were of concern. One of those concerns was the uh, pending legislation that would have restricted the space for civil society. The U.S. had been engaged with the government on that, uh, as well as with civil society, trying to convince the government that whatever legislation it passed that would deal with the civil society would leave space for civil society to operate. We engaged while I was in Juba, as well as our embassy, constantly on the issues of freedom of the press in South Sudan. We have engaged with the government on issues of corruption. So all of these things that we saw building to the crisis, those were issues we didn't discover on the 16th of December. Those were issues we had been working uh, with South Sudanese leaders on since independence, uh, many of them. Again, in my visits to Juba as far back as September, which is when I first uh, began as the uh, special envoy, I met with the government as well as the opposition, the people who had been dismissed from their uh, cabinet posts in July. I met with them and I made a constant message of you, you are risking coming up with a miscalculation. You need to be sure you don't burn down this new house of South Sudan. The new house that Donald Booth is referring to metaphorically and which the sacked ministers and politicians were warned not to burn is South Sudan itself, Africa's newest nation. Ironically, by the time Donald Booth was speaking, the new house, as he called it, had already been engulfed by a huge fire 
and now it may take time before that very huge fire is put out by President Salva Kiir. Perhaps it may be timely and pertinent to highlight important words made by the United States representative to South Sudan, Donald Both. Today, he says, and I quote, South Sudan is a failing state. Unfortunately, both IGAD and the African Union are currently frozen in their response. President Kiir's government appears to be counting on regional and international inaction or even a blind eye as it seeks to resolve the country's political crisis via military force. This is unacceptable, says the outgoing United States representative to South Sudan, Donald Booth. Booth continues to say, We are rightly alarmed when a senior UN official warns of the potential for genocide. But we should not allow that word and the inevitable debate about whether or not it applies. The United States has to seek new approaches, but without question, the United States should continue to play its prominent historical role with regard to South Sudan, concludes Donald Booth, the outgoing United States representative to South Sudan. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. My name is Sipa Hot Sticks Mabuse, a South African musician and an African artist for that matter. You are listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Pambi. My name is Yvonne Chaka Chaka from South Africa, but Africa is my home. You're listening to Channel Africa. The voice of the African Renaissance. My name is Habida, an African artist from Kenya, and you're listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. It's 8.30, and our headlines up next with Than Musa. A very good morning to you. In the headlines, fresh protests have erupted in several cities in Côte d'Ivoire, including the capital, Abidjan, where retired soldiers barricaded highways. The Gambia has appointed a female vice president, Aja Futamata Tambajang, from the opposition coalition that helped bring President Adama Barrow to power. And Nigerian authorities have warned that female suicide bombers have started carrying babies to avoid detection. Those are the stories making headlines.
Thank you, Anne. United Nations Children's Fund says absolutely nothing justifies the continuing use of siege tactics by the warring parties in Syria. UNICEF's regional director, Geert Kapelare, says that escalating violence in the besieged eastern city of Deir el-Zor had put 93,000 civilians at risk, including more than 40,000 children. The extremist group ISIL, or Daesh, has surrounded the city since July 2014 depriving its residents of food, medicines and other essentials. The UN had been carrying out airdrops of aid for the past nine months, but Daesh militants took control of the drop zone on January the 15th. More from UNICEF spokesperson Tamara Kumar. Uh, children living in the in the city of Deir Zor, which has been besieged uh, for the past uh, two years, have come under a very intense attack in the past week. We estimate that uh, this escalation of violence has is threatening the lives of 93,000 civilians, including over 40,000 children. Uh, people have been cut off from regular access to humanitarian aid for over two years. We are receiving reports of indiscriminate shelling that uh, has uh, killed scores of uh, civilians and forced many others to remain uh, in the relative safety of their homes. Food prices have skyrocketed uh, to levels that are five up to ten times higher than prices for basic goods in the capital. We're also receiving reports of uh, chronic water pollution, which are forcing families and children to resort to untreated water. We're very concerned uh, because of uh, because of this, of the risk of uh, waterborne diseases, especially among children. So uh, uh, what is the UNICEF doing in that regard? Uh, well, we are calling on all parties to the conflict to immediately lift all sieges and allow the unimpeded and unconditional access for humanitarian organizations to children in their resort, as well as all of the other areas that are under siege in the country. There's absolutely nothing that justifies uh, the use of these, uh, of these uh, methods and uh, the suffering that they, uh, that they wreak on children. These children have really, uh, they have really borne the brunt of the violence in Syria. Are there any plans from UNICEF to reach those in besieged areas, including those in Deir Zor? Well, UNICEF is advocating for, for access to uh, all children in Syria, wherever they may be, including uh, the children who are located in uh, besieged areas. And we are trying with every method uh, possible to uh, allow them to access humanitarian assistance. That was Tamara Kumar, United Nations Children's Fund in Jordan, speaking to UN Radio's Basma Bagal. United Nations experts say depriving children of their freedom should be a measure of last resort. Manfred Nowak is who is a leading UN global study on children deprived of liberty, says education and social care is better than locking children up in detention centers. According to the UN's Human Rights Office, child refugees and children living in conflict zones may end up in detention because of their migration status or because they are perceived as a threat to national security. Many young children are also detained for long periods of time where they are subjected to inhumane forms of torture. Nowak explains. Children should in principle never be deprived of liberty. It should only be a measure of last resort. In reality, we don't really know how many children are deprived of liberty. I visited so many different detention facilities where I found children in very deplorable situations because we are not only talking about children who are in pre-trial detention or even after having been sentenced in, in 
prisons, but there are many other reasons. For instance, if you think about uh, children on the move, uh, migrant and refugee children with their families or even unaccompanied minors, and very often they end up in uh, migration detention centers for quite a long period of time. You might have children that spend some time with their parents who are incarcerated. Uh, that's another category. Uh, there are many child soldiers that are also imprisoned uh, by the other side of the armed conflict. Uh, children uh, in the context of the fight of, against terrorism and for security reasons might be locked up. They might be institutionalized for their own protection in, in relation to drug use, uh, in relation to that they are difficult to educate, and uh, but they are under the uh, level of criminal responsibility. They are put in children's homes that very often are, in fact, uh, deprivation of liberty because they can't simply leave these institutions. Is this a global issue or are there any particular countries where there is a rise in the number of children who are being detained? It's really a global issue. You find it in, for instance, unaccompanied uh, refugee children. You find in Europe, you find in the United States, so in the rich countries where they are coming and very often the authorities feel that there are no alternatives than simply putting them in detention. In relation to criminal juvenile justice, of course there are differences. There are many countries that have a very low age of criminal responsibility and I have seen in, in many African countries for instance that children were simply locked up because they have committed a crime uh, at the age of seven, eight, nine. and I think this is not the way you should deal with children. They need better education, they need social care but not being locked away in a, in a prison. So it is really a global phenomenon. You've been conducting a global study on children deprived of liberty. What are some of the key points of this research and what do you aim to one of the main ideas of the global study is trying to collect reliable statistical data on how many children disaggregated by, by gender, by age, etc., um, so that we really know what is the global situation, but also that we involve the kids. So the kids should have play an active role in speaking out. And, of course, we are looking for best practices from all regions in the world, but the main bulk will be dependent on all the data that we can can collect from all countries in the world. So we need the cooperation of states and some of those data are not that easy, they are not available, so they have to collect those data. But it is very important that we know the phenomenon, so what is the magnitude of this phenomenon and then we have to look into what are the root causes, what is the length of detention and what can be done in order to reduce that. I mean the aim is that children should actually not be deprived of liberty. That is our overall aim. So what can the UN and other world organizations do to support this study? The UN, uh, of course, is the major institution and there are many agencies. For instance, UNICEF is playing a very important role to assist us there in collecting the data, assist governments to actually being able to get those data. There's a coalition of about 100 or more NGOs saying this is a very important topic and we want this global study as a basis then for our advocacy work 
for recommendations to states but also to international organizations how we should deal with this problem which is really a, a, a terrible problem. I can tell you from my own experience it was sometimes heartbreaking if you come to a detention facility and you see all those kids whose future is destroyed because if you lock them up for a few years then you destroy their hopes, their life. That was Manfred Noak, leader of the United Nations Global Study on Children Deprived of Liberty, speaking to you and radio's Priyanka Shankar. We have great news for you. Channel Africa has gone mobile. If you have a cell phone, you can now download the mobile app for Android. You can get it on Google Play. Get the latest news from Africa. Get the Channel Africa app. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. It's 8.39 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. South Africa's opposition party, the EFF, says it is now looking at alternatives to try and find a way to save the public protector's office as it believes Busisiwe Mkwebane is only interested in protecting the interests of the state. The party has labelled her as a puppet for the wealthy Gupta family and is only going to destroy the office. Mkwebani took over the public protector's office in November last year after Tulima Donsela served for seven years. The party announced this during its media briefing where it outlined the EFF's three-day plenum where it adopted the party's year-long program. Mbali Sibanyoni has more. In setting the agenda for the year, EFF leader Julius Malema shared the party's sentiments on the work of the public protector over the last three months. I said, why deny an African child an opportunity? She has proved herself through an interview. Let's give her benefit of doubt. Yo, yo. Ah, we didn't know what we are doing. Now we regret that thing. We regret it. South Africa, we regret supporting this comrade. She's going to collapse that office. Malema was part of the parliamentary committee that recommended Mkwebane succeeds to Lima Donzela, this despite knowledge of allegations that Mkwebane is a former spy, a claim which she has denied. The EFF leader has also weighed in on the current SABC inquiry, saying its intentions are not genuine. And then we have a, a committee there in parliament which is pretending to be doing some work. You know what's happening there? That work is not genuine. It's factional battles towards the conference of the ANC. We are participating because we love this country. But a group, which is a Ramaphosa group actually, the Ramaphosa group is the one that is pursuing the SABC program. Because the Zuma group controls the SABC and they are not getting the, uh, the coverage they want for Ramaphosa. The EFF has declared 2017 as the year of the branch and says the party is ready to take over the Metsimaholo municipality situated in the northern Free State. By-elections are expected to be held next month and will seek to strike a deal with the DA and see it run its first municipality. Malema says it will continue to oppose the ANC to ensure its removed control of the public purse. The ANC with money is very dangerous. Because when people complain, the ANC 
just gives them food parcels and t-shirts. Hey, we don't have water. Oh, take. They give them food parcels and t-shirts. So we want to remove that patronage away from the ANC so that the playing field must be leveled. Then it's us and the ANC on the ground. We have the message. The ANC doesn't have the message. The ANC has got the money and it buys votes. On the international front, the current resurgence of the right-wing parties and the pronouncement by the U.S. President Donald Trump on economic and foreign policies, Malema says this should be a concern for developing countries. When Trump goes to protect, his friends in Europe will follow him and protect. And those citruses we're sending to Europe will no longer be allowed to go to Europe. And as a result, that industry will collapse in South Africa, but they will be bringing uh, the leftovers uh, from their country into uh, our country. So we ought to stand uh, in direct opposition of that. Turning to Africa, Malema further called on continental leaders to respect the will of the people, and he was up front on President Robert Mugabe and ZANU-PF. Zimbabwe's situation is bad. President Mugabe can't even control a, a spade. You know, they, was, they were trying to plant a tree, a, a sort tenning, and he can't control that thing. That's how old he is. He's no longer capable of discharging his responsibilities. We don't hate the man. They can respond and insult us anyhow they want. But they are a group of cowards, those comrades in ZANU-PF. The party says it also plans to host four provincial elective conferences in Gauteng, Northwest and the disbanded Eastern Cape and KwaZulu-Natal. Bali Sibanyoni, Johannesburg. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Africa, wake up. Africa, Africa, reveitoa. Africa, Africa, wema. Sun rises. Le soleil élevé. We are What's in the happen Africa? Africa, Dumelang Sanbonani. Africa, Mulishani, Pulibanj. Africa, Enyomi, Kilonshele. Africa, Ndinkim, Kinkunume. What's in the happen Africa? It doesn't matter where you come from. We, we are, are one people. people. Channel, Channel Africa. Africa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. This is DJ Cleo with G Exploits from Nigeria. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Our economics update up next with Amanda Machaka. Thank you, Lulu. Good morning. U.S. President Donald Trump is expected to sign an executive order on Tuesday to renegotiate the free trade agreement between the United States, Canada and Mexico. NBC News reports that in addition to renegotiating the North American Free Trade Agreement, Trump also intends to sign an executive order pulling out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership. He targeted both trade pacts during his White House campaign. The president said on Monday he planned talks with the leaders of Canada and Mexico to begin renegotiating NAFTA. Trump has meanwhile promised business leaders at a meeting in Washington that he will cut taxes massively and slash company regulations by 75%. He also warned 12 corporate CEOs gathered at the White House that he would impose a border tax on goods imported by companies that moved jobs out of the United States. 
Poor countries have been given the go-ahead to import generic medicines after a required two-thirds of World Trade Organization member states agreed to a deal that has taken more than a decade to finalize. WTO says the agreement gives the world's most vulnerable people access to drugs for diseases such as HIV-AIDS, tuberculosis and malaria. It's the first ever amendment to WTO rules and will help poor countries that cannot produce their own generic medicines. South Africa's National Union of Mine Workers and Anglo Gold Ashanti have agreed that 849 workers who are due to be retrenched will be transferred to other business units within the company and the other workers will be reskilled for other jobs. The NUM met with the company to seek avoidance measures that will minimize the retrenchment of workers to zero. NUM spokesperson Livuani Mamburu. We, we can confirm that uh, we met with uh, Anglo God Ashanti yesterday at, in Pochestrom in the Northwest Province where an agreement was reached. As the NEM, we will continue to monitor uh, to see whether the agreement that we reached with the company is implemented. Ghana's central bank is likely to cut its benchmark interest rate for a second straight meeting after consumer prices rose at the slowest pace since July 2014. According to economists, the central bank's governor, Abdul Nashiru Isahaku, has enough room to reduce the West Africa, African nation's main rate by as much as 150 basis points from 25.5%. The bank reduced the rate for the first time since May 2011 in November 2016. While inflation has been outside the central bank's target band of 6 to 10% since at least January 2013, growth in consumer prices decelerated to 15.4% in December, slowing for a third straight month. You know, financial indicators, uh, the U.S. dollar is trading at 13.52 South African rent, 10.43 Botswana Pula, and at 9.79 Zambian Kwacha. Says 0.80 to the British pound and at 0.93 to the euro. In commodities, gold is at $1,217 and platinum at $982 an ounce. The price of print crude oil is at $55.53 a barrel. That's the latest economics news. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. My name is Sipa Hot Sticks Mabuse, a South African musician and an African artist for that matter. You are listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Pambi. Thank you, Amanda. Sports update up next with Figlele Mwati. In our update this hour, we begin with rugby news. The Blizz Box arrived in Wellington, New Zealand, with a mission to extend their lead at the top of the World 7 Series standings this weekend. 
A third leg of the 10-leg series takes place in New Zealand's capital with the South Africans leading the standings on 41 points after winning the first round in Dubai and finishing runners-up in round two in Cape Town. Mother City winners England are second on the standings with 39 points and current World Series and Olympic champions Fiji are third on 32 points. For the Blitzbox, the first challenge is overcoming jet lag by the weekend to ensure that they are playing an opt- at optimum level. Their second and bigger challenge will be finding the rhythm without the injured, experienced duo of playmaker Cecil Africa and star forward Kylie Brown. The Blitzbox, who lost to New Zealand in last year's fin- final at the West Park Stadium, will face Japan, Australia and Fiji in Pool B on Saturday. Meanwhile, the Kenya Rugby 7 squad for the Wellington and Sydney legs of the 2016-2017 HSBC 7's World Series has also landed in Wellington ahead of the third leg set for this coming weekend. Head coach Innocent Simuyu included five new faces to the team that featured in Dubai and Cape Town 7s last year. Oscar Omar, Eden Aguero, Semi Oliech, Bush Mwale and all-time series top try scorer Colin Zinjera will be featuring in the team for the first time this season. Kenya 7s is pulled alongside Argentina, England and Papua New Guinea for Wellington 7s. Channel Africa's Francis Mutegi has more. The Kenya Rugby Union management is also working hard to resolve the issue of contract with the National Sevens team after handing them the papers to sign last Tuesday. The players are yet to put pen to paper though as they have been given time to go through them before the next consensus meeting when they return from the Wellington and Sydney legs of the World Rugby World Series where they have gone. The issue of contract and bonuses had caused some disquiet in the Shuja camp. It played out loudly before the season began during the unveiling ceremony of the new sponsors Sport Pesa late last year. In football news, Algeria crashed out of the Africa Cup of Nations at the group stage after failing to win a single game in Gabon. They were held to a dual draw by Group B winner Senegal in a match they had to win to have any chance of avoiding an embarrassing early exit. Islam Slimani scored both their goals, a two-yard volley and scuffed offward that wrong-footed Algeria's goalkeeper. But Senegal twice equalized, Papakouli Diop and then Moussa So both firing in efforts from the edge of the area. Algeria went into the tournament as one of the favorites for the trophy, but leave with the reputation damaged by three underwhelming performances. In another match, Tunisia secured their place in the Africa Cup of Nations quarterfinals as Group B runners-up with an easy win over bottom team Zimbabwe. Naim Slitis' defeated shot put Tunisia ahead before Yusuf Makhni and Taha Kenenisa extended the lead. Ghana national team head coach Avram Grant has given a strong indication that he will rest his key players for their last Group E match against Egypt at Stade Port Gentil in Gabon on Wednesday. Our life is not dependent on this game, but we want to win every game. Of course, our target is the quarterfinal. Any team that we will face in the quarterfinal will be a strong team. We saw the group. But it depends also on the profile of the team that many of the players rest in the last six months as they didn't play. So uh, some players need more games to play. Our key players, for, because of injuries and not injuries, didn't play the last six months uh, since the, the league started. And uh, I think they need games. So anyway, they need games. And anyway, we want to win the game. So uh, we will analyze everything and then we will see. And finally, with tennis news, Venus Williams continued her astonishing late career revival 
by failing Anastasia Pavlyuchenkova 6-4-7-6 on Tuesday to reach a first Australian Open semi-final in 14 years. The quarter-final will hardly be remembered as a classic, with both Williams and the 24th-ranked Russian surrendering serve with alarming regularity despite perfect conditions for tennis at Rod Laver Arena. In the end, it was 36-year-old Williams' experience that proved decisive when the pressure rose and Pavlyuchenkova crumbled with a double fault on match point to boost the Americans' hopes of a maiden title at Melbourne Park. That's just sport news this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorba. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories in Africa, rise and shine at the Sawa, Turkish President Recep Erdogan meets his Tanzanian counterpart John Magufuli, SADC Oversight Committee meets Lesotho politicians, and UN agency expresses concern over humanitarian situation in Syria. That wraps up Africa, rise and shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumutara Magadza and Komutsu Mopulani, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info.channelafrica.co.za or tweet us at riseshineafrica.com or send an SMS on 277 Are taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa is a Flavor with a song titled Noir Baby. <laughs> Kona kona baby, and I go tell my mama, and I go tell my papa, and I go tell and say, if you waka waka baby, if you chuku chuku baby. Waka waka baby, uru uru baby.
tell and say. You be waka waka, baby. You be chuku chuku, baby. Shower, I wish I, 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 I